Our second reading this morning comes from the Paul's letter to first letter to Timothy, his friend and his disciple, uh, chapter two, verses one through seven. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God... There is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested to at the right time. For this, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in the faith and truth. Let us pray. Lord, send us your Holy Spirit to give us a fresh understanding of the Scriptures this day. Challenge us and change our lives as we encounter your wisdom and truth through Christ, your living word. Amen. So as Donnie mentioned uh, in the announcements, this is the third installment of a four-part series that I'm doing uh, entitled Reboot. Uh, And if you'll remember all the way back to September 1st, which seems about 10 years ago, Um, we looked at Paul's letter to his friend Philemon and uh, Paul's attempt to reconcile this broken relationship that Philemon had with Onesimus. And then uh, part two was reimagining regret. Uh, We used also Paul's letter to Timothy. And we talked about just acknowledging uh, regret and allowing the Holy Spirit to move in us and relieve that burden of regret so that we could be free to worship God and free to... Uh, interact with one another and to love one another more openly. And so today is part three. It's uh, reframing prayer. And again, using Paul's letter to Timothy um, as our guide. And then part four will be October 30th, and that will be Rethink Happiness. So as I mentioned before, I always like to give credit to where the kind of where the thought process comes from. And it came from an article I read from a Methodist pastor named Brian Erickson. And it was about renewing and restarting a ministry in a time of transition. And, and I felt it appropriate for the fall because we, we you know, that is a, a great time of transition usually in our lives. We move from that kind of unstructured times of, of summer uh, into the more scheduled times of the fall. And now that it's October, uh, maybe we've moved into that what I call organized chaos or at least that's what I call my life about this time of year, organized chaos. So I think that's an excellent opportunity for us to reboot, uh, to use Paul's letter to fellow Jesus followers uh, to figure out how we can do better in our lives, maybe get better connected with God. In his letters, Paul outlines for us some of the most basic and practical, I think, transformations that can occur in the life of a disciple. Uh, ranging from reconnection uh, in broken relationships to finding peace in in a troubled world that's really bent on hoarding possessions. The thing we must remember through all this is that Christ is making all things new, even in us, even in our church, even in our community and the world. Christ continually makes all things new. 
So when I think about prayer and how as faithful disciples we uh, approach prayer, I'm always reminded of a story that I heard uh, a long time ago uh, about a small town in the panhandle of Oklahoma. They were experiencing an extreme drought. And when there's a drought, it affected the farmers. And when the farmers were affected, it affected the town. And, and so it was something of great concern to everybody what to do about it. And so the community leaders were holding meetings and talking about it, and even a group of the local pastors got together and said, what can we do uh, to support and help our community in this time of drought? And someone had the idea that maybe they should have a a community-wide prayer meeting. And so they decided to do that. All the churches got together, and they got a big tent, and they put it just outside of town where everybody could see it, and they picked a day on the calendar that the whole town would come together and pray for rain. So as that day came, droves of people came. People came from all over. They walked and came in their wagons and rode their horses. And from town, they came there to this prayer meeting. And pretty soon, the tent began to fill up with people. And then there were so many people that there were people kind of standing outside of the tent. And unnoticed, really, to most people, a a small little girl walked up clutching a red umbrella. And she was stopped at the entrance of the tent by a well-meaning adult who, who said to her, you know, you, young lady, there's a lot of people in there, and I really don't want you to take that umbrella in there because you might poke somebody with it. So a little girl kind of looked around and looked at all the people there, and she said, well, with this many people who are going to be praying to God for rain, I got a new dress, and I don't want it to get rained on, so I brought my umbrella. <laughs> Is that the kind of faith that we have in prayer? Do we have so much faith in our prayer life that we'll actually believe that when we want it to rain, it will rain? We have to have that faith. We have to have that ability to do that. And I hope this little story will help us kind of reframe maybe what we think about prayer. Now, I know as faithful people, we're all here in church or at home watching church together. We pray. That's what we do. Uh, My guess is you've probably heard several sermons on prayer, how to pray, what to pray, when to pray. But as a pastor, one of the most often questions I get from people is about how to pray. Even total strangers, I mean, once they find out I'm a pastor, ask me about prayer. For many people, prayer comes just naturally. Uh, But for some, it's a struggle. They want to do it just right. So they get caught up in a lot of the complexities of it, and they end up not doing it. So let's take a few moments and maybe reframe our prayer life. Now, maybe you're totally satisfied with the way way you pray in your prayer life, Um, but like any good athlete who trains for a sport, there's always room to hone those skills, to find improvement, uh, to help you along the way. And well, the rest of us, uh, we might need some encouragement. We might need some major reframing. I have just one phrase that will sum up for us what I just read from Paul's letter to Timothy. Is Paul is explaining to Timothy how to pray. Just do it. Just do it. Just pray. So I thought I'd share with you this morning maybe some of the people, the folks that I've been around that have maybe encourage me along the way in my prayer journey and my faith journey as I've gone along, how I've been able to maybe reframe my own prayer life. 
So in our, in our Presbyterian world, uh, when students go to seminary, that's a three-year program, and then traditionally you spend a couple of those summers uh, working in a church, at least one. I was lucky I got two. Uh, my first summer was in uh, First Presbyterian in Germantown, Tennessee. Germantown's just out, a suburb of Memphis, Tennessee, and First Pres Germantown is where Susie and I got married. Uh, the second summer I was at Myers Park Presbyterian Church in Charlotte. And those summers were great. I met some great friends on the staff and some of those people that I worked with and met some wonderful uh, lay leaders and congregation members as well. Beautiful, fantastic people. Uh, very dedicated to their life and, and inspiring people. Um, you know, and they imparted on me some things to this kind of up-and-coming pastor in how to, leave, uh, how, to, how to live that prayerful life. So I'm going to share a couple of those with you. Uh, the first thing I really learned about prayer... Um, is that you always need to have one. Uh, Donnie just talked in his announcements about the, uh, you know, having your elevator speech. And you probably hear that in business too, about having an elevator speech that you can tell your, um, tell your boss if you get in the elevator and there's your boss and you want to kind of show your worth to the company or you're with a client, you want to be able to tell them the worth of your, of your business to their business. Uh, you've got to have a little short speech that you can just memorize, that you can just pop out and, and give to that. You need to have a prayer like that too in your life. You need to have a prayer because uh, as a Christian, somebody is going to ask you at some point somewhere uh, to pray. And for some people, again, that comes very naturally. For others, not so much. But it, it helps to have just a little short, concise prayer that you have memorized uh, that you can have uh, that, would, that would go and helps, uh, help that person draw closer to God. Uh, I learned that from one of the mentors I had at Germantown Prez, uh, Reverend Ernest Meller. Uh, Ernest was a Paris associate, and Ernest was a real kind and and friendly person. Uh, he had been in several churches, and he had retired there into Memphis, and he and I shared an office. And uh, he was just a great, great guy. Um, he was the first person that took me on, like, official hospital visits. I'd been to the hospital, obviously, many times as an elder uh, in the churches I'd served, but I'd never been there in the official capacity as the pastor. And so he took me on those visits. And one thing I noticed right away with Ernest was that he, he had that ability to kind of just hone in on what the issue was with the, with the patient or with the family. And, and he was able to draw in um, that into a prayer or, or scripture. Usually he'd, he'd memorized a couple of psalms and he would share those. And his prayers were just really genuine, just right to the point. Um, he seemed to always pray the right thing at the right time. And, uh, you know, that's a skill 20-something years later that I'm still working on. Uh, then the second summer, I was at Myers Park Prez in Charlotte, and I met Jean Graham Ford. Uh, she was an elder at Myers Park, and she is Billy Graham's sister. Um, over that summer, the uh, adult Sunday school uh, group had put together some interviews with church members on different subjects, and Jean Graham Ford was on prayer. And so I made sure to go to that one. I really wanted to find out what she had to say. Uh, now, you would think someone that was Billy Graham's sister really had a, a grasp on prayer and, and probably a pretty cush life, uh, but she had uh, lived a, a hard life uh, growing up in North Carolina. When she was 11 years old, she contracted polio 
And during that time, uh, they didn't really understand polio and how that uh, affected people and how it could be transmitted. So the first thing they did when someone, uh, they identified that someone had polio was that they would isolate them. Now she was 11 years old and the polio settled in her throat. So she was having trouble communicating with people and she couldn't swallow very well. Uh, so there were then so many people swarmed the hospitals with, uh, as polio swept through a certain area, that they built, uh, in Charlotte, they built some tents outside the hospital, and they would take the patients outside and kept them in the tents. And uh, Jean uh, Graham said that there were many times that she would lay in, in this bed, unable to communicate with people, but she could hear the nurses and the doctors talking about her, and that how they didn't think that she was going to make it. And so here's this 11-year-old girl that's been taken away from her family, um, you know, with really no comfort, no understanding of what's going on with her, thinking she's going to die. And she doesn't. Obviously, she survives and, and uh, is able to grow up, and she becomes an adult. Uh, she marries Leighton Ford. They have a very successful ministry. They have their own family. Uh, one of their uh, sons is tragically killed in an automobile accident. So, you know, through this kind of up and down life, she maintained a prayer life. And, and this is what she said about it. She said that every morning when she woke up, as she was getting ready, um, as she was getting ready in the morning, she recited to herself a, a, a verse from an old hymn that she remembered singing as a child. And the verse goes like this, May the mind of Christ, my Savior... Live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. May the mind of Christ, my Savior, live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. So that's how she started her day with that thought process that asking in a prayer for her mind to be like Christ. And the rest of the day, no matter what she did, um, who she encountered, what situation she read about in the paper or saw in the news or just talking to a friend, she lifted up those uh, supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving to God and just continued that prayer all throughout the day. No candle lighting, no prayer benches, no you know isolation, just living her life with that tape recorder of prayer kind of in the back of her mind. Now, I, I lifted up some very faithful prayer warriors here, and notice I didn't lift up myself uh, in that, because like uh, maybe some of you, um, you know, I admire the abilities of, of people that really have that great prayer, prayer life, and I feel somewhat inadequate of my own. Uh, prayer is perhaps the most well-known spiritual tool in our faithful toolbox, but it is maybe the least understood uh, like I said, most people I talk to about prayer will admit guilt about not praying, and that's okay. And the honest ones will actually confess that they're really confused about prayer. So again, we turn to Paul for practical advice. Now, Paul doesn't offer Timothy and the other readers of his letter a how-to uh, to pray. That's not in the cards. Paul points us to a more important aspect of prayer. Who for? Who are we praying for? And, and maybe that's the most important step we need to take when we reframe our prayer is who are we praying for? Now to pray for our enemies is a core teaching of our faith, but Paul takes that to a much bigger and broader context. Paul helps us see that our prayer is a barometer of how we understand who God is. 
how God is working in the world, how God is the ultimate and uh, how God dispenses uh, unmerited grace and salvation and how God showers that all over all of creation. Our prayers to God should be more than making requests to God. Much more. Our prayer time is a process of beginning for us to actually think like God. To see the world as God sees the world. To love the world the way God loves the world. Now prayer is, uh, for me, that ultimate paradigm shift. And a paradigm shift is a fundamental change in approach and understanding of a basic assumption. So we have a basic assumption about prayer, and we need to change that. We need to change the way we see prayer. We need to change the way we see the world and our place in it. And this is why it's so important that faithful Christians pray every day. Paul's invitation to pray for all people focuses us to ask ourselves a question. For who am I not willing to pray for? And just so we don't gloss that over with some generalities, Paul specifically calls out a certain group of people for us to pray for. The powerful. The people with power over us. Not usually the crowd that we're going to pray and focus our prayers on. While we might like the idea of grace for ourselves and those we identify with, When we start to zoom in on specific people, especially those we disagree with, we can understand that we might skip over intercessions for people not like us. Here lies the tricky part of the gospel message. It says to us that God so loved the world. God so loved the world. So in our prayer life, we are to lift before God those for whom Christ died. And nothing less will do. Not just the chosen, not the people who look like us, think like us, vote like us. If we believe that God truly loves the world, all of it, the sinners and the saints, then our prayer life takes a dramatic shift, a reframing. Rather than our prayers projecting our will on God, our prayers become a realignment with God. Our hearts are once again formed in the image of God, the one who wants all people to be saved and brought to the knowledge of the truth. God's desire is that all people, even the people who make us angry sometimes, are important people to God and deserve our prayers. And when we break down that anger, and when we break down those barriers that keep us separate and pray for the other, Sometimes a change just happens inside of us. We become more like God. We see the world and all of creation the way God sees it. We love, respect, and offer kindness and grace to everyone. Now, the, the pastor from my grandparents' church and First Presbyterian Church in Prairie Grove, Arkansas, uh, a longtime friend and mentor, uh, Reverend John King, honor, honorably retired, Uh, used to close every worship service I ever went to with this phrase, pray for one another. They need the prayers and you need the practice. (laughs) May that be so today. May we pray for one another. May we practice our prayers 
and reframe our prayers and find the heart of God that is each and every one of us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.